Grab your Bibles. If you didn't bring one, please grab one from under a seat in front of you. Open it up. We are in the book of 2 Kings. We are continuing our study in chapter 12 tonight. 2 Kings chapter 12. Guys, we're up at the retreat. Pastor Ray, when you get there, say, got it. Got it. All right. <laughs> Sword check, yeah. 2 Kings chapter 12. All right, now keep your finger there and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. We're going to look at two accounts here tonight of the same story initially. Uh, there's some pieces that are filled in for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Got it. Got it. All right. So then keep your finger in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Back to 2 Kings. All right. Chapter 12. We pick up our study tonight. We've been looking at the history of the kings, both in the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah, as they have moved through their history. It's recorded for us in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. We have talked about the succession of kings that have come. All of the kings, as we've discussed in the northern tribes of Israel, there has yet to be and. Sad to say, there will not be a king that follows after the Lord. The southern tribes, we have some good kings, some bad kings, some that start good and bad, some that start bad and good. We've got kind of a mixed bag down in the south. We've talked about, you know, it's a little difficult to kind of trace it through. You've got to really be paying attention to the names, and it's going to keep that going tonight. So pay attention and follow along. We left off last time at a very crucial point in the history of Israel, but not just that, as we pointed out in, the, in the, the, the prophetic word of God that promised David that he would always have a son on the throne, that would, the Messiah would come through his line. And we talked last time that the Davidic line had gotten down to one child, a baby, one year old, and with the, it was the intent of that child's grandmother, who had already killed off the other siblings, to kill that child too, so that there would be no successors, that she could be on the throne. Some grandma, huh? But we saw last time, and that's in chapter 11, we saw last time a woman named Jehoshaphat who took the child and took him away into the temple and her and her husband Jehoiada, who was a, pre, a high priest in the temple, they took care of him and raised him up until he was, as we mentioned last time, seven years old. As we pick up, his name is Joash or Jehoash. He will be referred to as both as we move forward. And we pick up our study there, but I think it's important that we take a moment again here before we move through that too quickly, that this is a very dark time in the history of Israel. As I mentioned, we don't have a, at ever a good king in the north. The king at this time is Jehu in the north, the, Isra the tribes of Israel. Again, doing things initially anointed by God to take care of the household of Ahab. He did that, but then as we talked from there, he got ahead of God. He did things that he wasn't supposed to do. He walked away and, and continued in the sins of the, of the previous kings in Israel. But we also seen that since the last good king in the south, Jehoshaphat, we've had a couple kings that have not walked with the Lord. And in the midst of that, this dark time where there's not a good king, there's very few people following the Lord. Here we see two godly people, a husband and a wife, who are sensitive to the things of the Lord, 
who understand the importance of the things of the Lord and the promises of God and get involved and get active. And I say that because, guys, in case you haven't noticed, we're in some dark times. <laughs> and the, the, we, the, the world looks to leaders, uh, worldly leaders, to fix that problem. Guys, there is no solution to the problem other than Jesus. And it is going to take godly men and women on their knees praying and then getting active of the things of the Lord, that's the only hope that this country and this world has. And before we get discouraged too much, we can see what two people did in this story and how they continued on. Again, this, the, the lineage of David that will eventually result in the birth of Jesus, our Messiah. So we pick this up here now again, as we mentioned last time, as we finished chapter 11, Jehoiada had raised Joash in the temple till he was seven years old and then announced him as king, brought him out as king. They killed his, his grandmother to wipe that off and he is now reigning, starting at seven years old. And it says in verse one of chapter 12, in the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king. In the seventh year of the reign of Jehu in the north, Jehoash or Joash becomes king in the south. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Joash did right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoshaphat, the priest, instructed him. Now that's going to be important later on. It tells us that he did right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoshaphat, the priest, instructed him. When he had this mentor, when he had this godly man holding him accountable and teaching him and leading him, as he grew. But, verse 3 says, only the high places were not taken away. So the places where the, 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 they would go even in the south to go worship, unauthorized places. They were to, to go to the temple in Jerusalem. They did not deal with those places. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Then Jehoash said to the priests, all the money of the sacred things which is brought into the house of the Lord in current money, both the money of each man's assessment and all the money which any man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it for themselves, each from his acquaintance, and they shall repair the damages of the house wherever any damage may be found. We're going to see that the, the, the temple, the house of the Lord, had fallen under disrepair. But it came about that in the 23rd year of King Jehoash, the priests had not repaired the damages in the house. We don't know how long it was from that point, but they had not done what he had said to do. So King Jehoash called Jehoiada the priest and for the other priests and said to them, why do you not repair the damages of the house? Now therefore, take no more money from your acquaintances, but pay it for the damages of the house. So the priests agreed that they would take no more money from the people, nor repair the damages of the house. Now, keep your finger here and go to Second Chronicles, because we get a little bit more information in there. Chapter 24, beginning in verse 4, it says, Now it came about after this that Joash, and again, that's the same as Jehoash, decided to restore the house of the Lord. He gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, go out to the cities of Judah and collect money from all Israel to repair the house of your God annually, and you shall do the matter quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the levy 
fixed by Moses, the servant of the Lord, on the congregation of Israel for the tent of the testimony. For the sons of the wicked Athaliah had broken into the house of God and even used the holy things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So we see here what had happened in a previous reign of his grandmother, that they had, they had even started taking apart and, and damaging the temple, taking out even the sacred things of the Lord and using them in Baal worship. So the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside by the gate of the Lord. They made proclamation in Judah and Jerusalem to bring to the Lord the levy fixed by Moses, the servant of God, on Israel in the wilderness. All of the officers and all of the people rejoiced and brought in their levies and dropped them into the chest until they had finished. It came about whenever the chest was, was brought to the king's officer by the Levites, and when they saw that there was much money, then the king's scribe and chief priest's officers would come, empty the chest, take it, return it to its place. Thus they did daily and collected much money. So here, here's the th- they, they weren't initially obedient in doing what they were told to do. So he makes this command, set up a chest and place it in the temple. Place it where they come to make their sacrifices and, in, and, and give the people the opportunity then to make this offering and give to the Lord so that we can repair and we can do the, fix the damages in the house. And so I, one thing I want to point out though, I love this in verse 10. Notice what it says. All of the officers and all of the people rejoiced and brought their levies and dropped them into the chest. They understood what it was that they were able to do, to give to what the Lord was commanded and what the Lord was doing and give to the work of the Lord to repair the temple and to do those things. And notice it says they rejoiced in doing it. It was a blessing to them to be a part of that. Guys, do you realize what a blessing it is to give to the work of the Lord? That that it 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 is... It is a gift that is given to us, entrusted to us. Understand this, guys. It all belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord. It's all his. It's on temporary loan to us. And when it's given to us, and then we, in faith and in rejoicing and in an act of worship, give back to the Lord for his work, the blessing that is involved in that. I, I don't know how many of you were here this past Sunday night or, n- again, know what's going on with our, our sister church in New Jersey, but I am blessed every time I hear of the things that God is doing there, and it just blesses me to know that we're a part of that because of the giving that you give to, to, to this fellowship that we then in turn take and give to that. The blessing that is involved in that, it is, it is an amazing thing. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's not done out of a command. It's not done out of compulsion. It's not done begrudgingly. Here's the the bottom line secret to this whole thing. And you're gonna say, Pastor, I can't believe you just said that, but here it is. Listen, God doesn't need your money. You don't give because God's going broke. And if you ever have, if, if there's a ministry that says, man, if you don't give now, we're going down, we're going down, let it go down. Because God doesn't need it. Understand this, guys, we need it. He desires to bless us in return. 
And if you give begrudgingly or under compulsion or not with a joyful heart, here again, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. He doesn't need your money. He desires to bless you. He desires to pour that blessing back to you. And they got it. They understood it, and I love that. They rejoiced while they're giving. Well, back now, we saw that, that he commanded that this be done, that this chest be a hole cut in it, and the giving done with that. Back to 2 Kings. We'll be going back and forth here, so don't close that up completely. But verse 9, But Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid and put it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priests who guarded the threshold put in it all the money which, which was brought into the house of the Lord. When they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's scribe and the high priest came up and tied it in bags and counted the money which was found in the house of the Lord. They gave the money which was weighed out into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters and to the builders who worked on the house of the Lord. And to the masons and the stonecutters for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damages to the house of the Lord. And for all that was laid out for the house to repair it. But there was not made for the house of the Lord silver cups, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, any vessels of gold, vessels of silver from the money which was brought into the house of the Lord. We see in verse, verse 14 of Second Chronicles chapter 24 that after all of that was done, the leftover was used to, to, to make those things. Verse 14, for they gave that, that to those who did the work, and with that they repaired the house of the Lord. Verse 15, moreover, they did not require an accounting from the men into whose hand they gave the money to pay to those who did the work, for they dealt faithfully. That verse 15, I, 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 it, caused, it caused me to pause. And I, and I under that, for they dealt faithfully. They didn't have an accounting. They gave it because they were trustworthy men. They were, they were faithful men. And they, they didn't feel that it was necessary to have this big accounting structure or to follow it all through. They trusted and trusted these men with it. Now, we could say, looking at that, that, okay, well, you know, you're dealing in the house of God. I mean, you don't need much higher accounting than that, right? God, God is overseeing that. You're working for, for the Lord in his house. You know, you're not going to take money from that. You're not going to do with that. But you know what? The Bible tells us that that's the way we ought to be all the time. Not just when we're doing things within the church. As a matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Now we could say, the, the, understand back then, most people that were getting this letter were a slave of some sort. This could be easily translated to us today and have the same meaning to hold any of us. Employees. Anybody who is responsible to, for working to, with someone else, obey those who are your masters on, on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The same respect and honor that you would give doing that in the house of the Lord, do that when you're in the workplace. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And again, back in verse, it says, in all things, in all things obey your employers. In all things, unless it goes against 
what the Word of God says. Unless you are asked to do something that goes against clearly what God teaches us. If you're told to lie or cheat or steal, then that, that, that doesn't apply. But I tell you what, I've heard people try to use that and say, well, uh, you better have a verse to back up <laughs> what they're asking you to do that, 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 that the Word of God says against that. But other than that, in all things. And notice it says, not just with lip service. Not just externally when your boss is looking. But again, in all things, do your work heartily. Interesting, that, that is the Greek word suke, which means soul. What Paul is saying is, do your work with all you got. Do it with everything that you have. As for the Lord, as though you were working directly for the Lord, because he goes on to say, guess what, you are. In everything that we do as Christians, we are representing the Lord. We are working for him. We're representing him in all that we do. Again, Jesus tells us we're the light of the world. If you work in a dark place, you're a light in that dark place. Are you a, are you a good witness at work? Are you a light at work? Or do you join in with all of the complaining in the break room? Do you take, everybody? hey, everybody else is taking an extra five minutes. I'll do it too. Do you do just enough to get by? We're called to do more. We're called to go above and beyond. Now, I know that when you do that, it could mean problems with fellow employees. It could mean pushback. It could cause difficulty with others because, again, everybody else is staying an extra five minutes in the break room, but you're back on time. You show up on time. You're, you're early. You, you, you're not trying to just cut corners and get around. That will cause problems, but you know what? You're in good company. Read the book of Daniel. <laughs> you're in good company. But, it, again, it's Jesus who we serve. If we take that that truth and embrace that. He's our boss. He's the one we report to. I read this, this story a while ago. I had to look it back up on the internet today. But a man named Ken Galbraith, back in the years ago, worked in several presidential administrations, including Lyndon Johnson's. And he came home one day and he was wiped out tired. And he told his, the maid of the house who saw things, her name was Emily Wilson. He told her, I need to take a nap. I am wiped out. Don't interrupt me. I need, my, I need to take a nap. So he goes, taking a nap. Meanwhile, a little while later, President Johnson calls and says, I need to talk to Mr. Galbraith. She said, I'm sorry, sir, but he's taking a nap. And she goes, he said, this is the president. Go wake him up. And she said, no, Mr. President, I work for him, not you. <laughs> You know what happened? The next day, Lyndon Johnson called him and says, I want her working in the White House. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Guys, we work for the Lord, and it says, you will receive the reward of your inheritance. Our reward is waiting for us, again, when we are that good witness, as we talked this weekend at the men's retreat, being that witness in everything that we do. We work for him. Well, back here, verse 16, 
says the money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It was for the priests. So that money was used then for, for, the, for their pay to continue with them. Verse 17, it says, Then Haziel, king of Aram, went up and fought against Gath and captured it. And Haziel set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now we saw this, this guy back a few chapters ago. Remember when Elisha came to him and he prophesied that you're going to become king? And, but he said that he saw the damage and he saw the wickedness that he was going to bring upon the children of Israel. And he wept. If you were with us in that study, it's a couple chapters previously, I think 11. But he, here he says that he turns now. He goes down and he's fighting the Philistines in Gath. And now he turns and he comes towards Jerusalem. There's a huge gap in the history that is missing here. That's why we go back to Second Chronicles here. In verse 15, 2 Chronicles 24, verse 15. Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. That is the priest who raised Joash. He was the one that was the mentor for him, remember? It says, They buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and to his house. Buried him among the kings. Very respected and loved. And remember, we talked about the fact that Joash followed the Lord as long as Jehoiada was his mentor. Notice what happens next. Verse 17. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their guilt. We see that after this godly mentor, this man who had raised him up, who had been holding him accountable, who had been there and teaching him the ways of the Lord, when he died, the enemy came in. Others came along and said, you know, and convinced him, and it says that he listened to them. I know this didn't happen just one day, where Joash just said, you know what, I'm going to become an idolater. I'm going to walk away from all of this, and I'm just, going to, I'm just going to chase after all of these idols. But he listened to them. He let a little bit in. There's a poem that I often remember when it comes to this. It says, it's late at night. Who could be knocking? Is it evil? Is it the enemy that is out there stalking? I asked who's there praying they'd leave in a hurry. My name's indiscretion, you don't need to worry. Should I pick up a weapon or sound an alarm? He said he was harmless and meant me no harm. I'll look out the window, just take a peek. That's not so bad, not a sign that I'm weak. I'll just take a look, though I know it's not right. He seems pretty harmless, like an angel of light. I opened the door, it's just one little sin, but before I knew it, all hell came in. Open the door just a crack. Got away from his godly influence, the mentor that was there, the one that was there, and he got away. And here's a very important truth that we all need to understand. 
especially you young people. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. And you cannot be saved. You cannot rely on the faith of your parents. You can't rely on the faith of those who have been pouring into you and instructing you. It has to be a very real, personal faith. If it is not, and if it is not grounded in the word of God, and in prayer, and in a true living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you get away from those mentors, you get away from those influences, it does not take long for the enemy in the world to snatch up. How do I know? Because I am one. I grew up in a Christian home. Godly parents who taught me the word of God from when I was young. I went to a Christian grade school. I went to a Christian high school. One of the most godly men I know was my basketball coach in high school. And I had a relationship with God, but it wasn't anywhere near as strong as I thought it was because I was relying on these things that these other people had and them holding me accountable. But when I went off to college, I'm telling you, it took less than 24 hours for me to be already starting to get sucked away. My parents were barely driving away after dropping me off. And it took many years, about 15 years, before I came back to the Lord, where I fell face down on the floor and repented. But here's the deal. We don't have to go through that. (laughs) We all need to understand that we need that very personal relationship with the Lord. We can't rely on others. Yes, we need to be mentored and we need to be discipled, but it needs to become personal. He abandoned the Lord. He walked away. And look, look again, how much God loved him and how much he loved the others. And this happened with me too. Look, he sent prophets to them to bring them back. God loved them so much. He kept sending prophets, sending the word. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. And look how bad it gets. Verse 20. Then the spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he will also forsake you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had showed him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. Now it happened at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans, and here we start to parallel our verse that we just looked at, came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed all the officials of the people and, among, and from among the people, and sent all the spoil to the king of Damascus. And we're going to see the spoil in a moment. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men. Not a huge army, but notice it says, the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. It tells us, Back in 2 Kings, again, Haziel, king of Aram, went up 
And we see how he got the spoil. Notice it says in verse 18, Joash, the king of Judah, took all the sacred things that Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Ahaziah, his father, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred things, and all the gold that was found among the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, and sent them to Haziel, king of Aram. Then he went away to Jerusalem. He takes all of this money, takes all of the spoil, all of these things, and buys off. That's how he got it. Now all this, all this treasure ends up in Damascus because he feels like this is how I'm going to save everything. I'm going to buy him off. And then he went away to Jerusalem. I'll just read it to you back in 25. The other one, it says, When they had departed from him, for they left him very sick, his own servants conspired against him. This is Joash. Because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and murdered him on his bed, so he died and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. So we see even though he, he paid them off, he was injured somehow, hurt, and, and he ends up dying for, or in, in bed because of that. And then it tells us some of those very ones that were getting him to listen and leading him away were responsible for killing him. Verse 19, back in 2 Kings, Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? His servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash at the house of Milo as he was, sitting, as he was going down to Sulla. For Jazakar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants struck him and he died, and they buried him with his father in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, became king in his place. A tragic end to this man. That we, Remember when we looked at him, this boy, seven years old, the, the king, the, doing godly things initially, but we see with a tragic end for not continuing to follow after the Lord. Well, chapter 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel at Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. So now we shift back to the north. Verse 2, a familiar verse. I mean, it's repeated over and over and over when we're introduced to a new king in the north. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He did not turn from them. The sin, again, as we talked about, is the sin of idolatry. Again, not a foreign god. They weren't worshiping Baal at this time, but they had made the golden calves and set them in two places, in Dan and Bethel. And, that, and they said, well, you come and you worship Yahweh here. But God said, that's not how you worship me. That's idolatry. You are not to make those images, but they did that. And that is the continued sin that the north continued to have continuing to believe the lie of the enemy. Believe that you can do things. Did God really say, and if God really said that, is that what God really meant? And as long as, as, long as you're sincere, that's all that really matters. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. The word of God says that, but is that what it really means? The lie of the enemy that continues to go on and on and on. And they certainly continue to buy into it. Verse three, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Aram, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. Notice verse 4, though. It says, Then Jehoaz entreated the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. 
For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. In that, again, remember when we studied through Judges, that cycle that continued to go. The people of God, they'd rebel, they'd turn away from God. God would allow a, the enemy to come in and, and take, take over, and then they would cry out to the Lord. God would have compassion on them, send a deliverer to them, a judge that would deliver them, and then afterwards, they'd end up right back in the same cycle over and over again. We see that take place here. Here, Jehoaz this evil king that is following the ways that have always been up there. Now the enemy comes in and he cries out to God and God listened. God heard. God answered. Notice it says in verse five, the Lord gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Arameans and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. God heard. He sent a deliverer. It's interesting that that's all we hear about this. There's no more information about it. We don't know who the deliverer was. We don't have a name. We don't know how they were delivered. And I, I think that's interesting. That intrigues me in a time again that we're in. That God will use godly men and women. Sometimes we won't even know what it is that, that who is doing through prayer, through seeking, through intervening. God works in mysterious ways and we don't always understand how that all works. But God hears and answers prayer. And he delivers them. But look at verse six. Nevertheless, that's a big but. That's a long version of but. Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam with which he made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained standing in Samaria. After all of that, they didn't turn to the Lord. They didn't come back. All of those prayers that go, God, if you get me out of this mess, I promise. And God delivers, and the promise doesn't follow. For he left Jehoaz of the army, not more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. That's all that's left of the entire army in the north. For the king of Aram had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz and all that he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Joash, his son, became king in his place. Guess what? Another Joash. Not the Joash in the south, a Joash in the north. In the 37th year of Joash, the king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jeho Jehoaz, became king over Israel and Samaria. So at least they used the separate names there to help us keep it straight. <laughs> and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's the verse again. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, but he walked in them. Now the acts of Joash and all that he did in his might with which he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on the throne and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So we here we kind of go through a couple of the kings of the north rather quickly. But now as we get into verse 14, we're going to go back. It tells us that Joash died. His son Jeroboam takes the throne. Jeroboam II 
But before that happens, we're going to take a look at an event that takes place in Joash's reign. Verse 14, when Elisha became sick with an illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Here we're back with Elisha. He was last mentioned in chapter 9 when he sent one of his servants to go and anoint Jehu as the king in the north. So we're looking probably some 40 years later. Here we are with Elisha. And it tells us that he is sick with an illness with which he is going to die. So much for name it and claim it. Must not have had enough faith, I guess. Paying attention? That was... Okay, all right. A great man of faith. He has illness and he's going to die from it. Joash here comes to him and understands that he is about to die. And that it's interesting how you get little glimpses of, of a sliver of faith here and there, or a sliver of understanding, because Joash comes to him in the end and is basically coming to him saying, what are we going to do if you die? What are we going to do? It, he, it's interesting. He says the same words. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. The last time we heard those words, Elisha sent them when Elijah went up to heaven in the chariot of fire. Understanding again now that, that it, it's not kings and their armies. It's almighty God that is in control. And here Joash is saying, what are we going to do if you're not here? There's enemies that are coming. And Elisha said to him, verse 15, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. So he tells him to grab the bow and to draw it back. And as he does that, again, symbolically, we'll see this in a second, Elisha then places his hands on, on the king's hands as he has the bow drawn back. And he says, now open the window toward the east. Good idea, open the window. You got a loaded weapon in the room. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram. And you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. So he is giving him again a picture that God is with you. That, that it's, it's the Lord that will win this battle. Now, it's, it's going to take faith, no doubt. You're going to have to step out in faith with this. But he's prophetically saying the Lord's arrow, as he shot it in the direction of the oncoming army, that the Lord will deliver you. And note, it's important, I believe, as we're looking at it, the Lord's arrow of victory. Because what he says next, he says, Then he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But you shall strike Aram only three times. Interesting as, as we look at that. Because I think that there's, there's some great application in that again. The arrow of the Lord, the arrow of victory. Again, God is, the, the, the battle is the Lord's. The arrows, again, pointing to that. And it said, now take the arrows that you have. Again, the arrows of the Lord and strike the ground. And he takes them and he's kind of like, all right. And he stops. 
And Elisha's like, why, why, why are you stri- if you would have continued to strike the ground five, six times, you would have had that. And I, I think of that and I said, how would he have known that? And that's the, the, the question I ask myself, when I'm, how would he have known? Well, guys, if we are in touch with the Lord, if we are in tune with the Lord, if we are, if we are obediently seeking the Lord, we're going to know that. We're going to have that. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, For this reason I too have heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus which exists among you for your love for all the saints. You do not see, I do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the, Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He would lay, he'll later say in Ephesians 5.17, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God desires for us to understand his will. It's, it's not this big cosmic secret that he has. It's his desire for us to know his will and to understand his will. And when we, when we, when we look at this, and again, this illustration, it, it, it was as I was talking with Christina this morning as we were having coffee, I mean, it just was so speaking to me as I, was, I read it out loud and going through that, that, you know, what does that mean? That we need to continue to strike the arrows on the ground. That we need to continue to go to the Lord. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Understanding what Jesus is saying there, those, the, the, the tense in what he's saying, he's saying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking continually. God himself, Jesus, God himself is asking us to ask. He's not reluctant to give. He knows exactly what we need. So why would he tell us to keep asking if he already knows and he's not reluctant to give it to us? Well, he desires fellowship with us. He wants us to understand that it is from him. He teaches us patience through the process. It's not a lack of faith to continue to ask. I've heard people say that. Well, if you keep asking and asking, it shows your lack of faith. No, persistence in prayer shows, I believe, an abundance of faith that we continue to ask. Seek. Bible tells us that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. When we seek him, not what we can get from him, but when we seek him, he reveals his will to us. He reveals himself to us. Knock, and it will be open. What is, what, those, that to, the, just in that statement, knock, and the door will be open. What does that imply? The door is closed. So we need to knock. But it also tells us that it's his desire to open it when he's ready and when we're ready. If we're knocking and we're told to continue to knock and the door's not open yet, I'm telling you, 
keep knocking because we're not ready yet. The time's not right. If he were to open it up before we're ready, there'd be problems. But keep knocking. Keep knocking. Keep tapping the arrows. Keep going to the Lord and saying, God, what is it? I need this from you. I need to understand what it is that you desire in me. The Bible tells us that when we pray in his will and diligently seek him in that, we have the requests that we offer, that we offer up. We have them. That's the promise that we have. Keep tapping. Keep going. Don't give up. I wonder how many, how many blessings I miss because I give up too early. How many doors would have been opened if I'd have just knocked one more time. I gave up because I wasn't ready yet. I gave up for whatever reason. And God said, oh, just like Elijah or Elisha, if you had just a few more times, you'd have had complete victory instead of just partial victory. Well, verse 20, Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. So they're carrying this dead guy out and they get him out into the graveyard and it says the, into the grave, but they, you know, probably a sarcophagus, they have these areas where they would place a dead body and leave it there for a year until it would completely decompose and all you have left are the bones. You go back in then, you take the bones, you put them in a bone box. That's what they did then. So that's what's going on. They're taking this guy out. They're going to put him in, this, in, in a place where that's going to take, happen to him. They look out, and here come the, the marauding band. The, the enemies are coming. And they're thinking, we don't have time to do this properly and get out of here. So they open up the closest grave and toss his body in. Guess what happens? And the man touched the bones of Elisha. So Elisha's bones are in there. And look what happened. He revived and stood up to his feet. Wow, that, that, that's pretty cool. And that's all it says. You know, sometimes when you read the word of God, you're like, God, come on, come on, Lord. We're gonna have to rent the DVD. I mean, I wanna see what happens, you know, next after that. I mean, I, did, the, did, the, did the enemy just like turn around and run the other way? Did they all stand? Man, if that happened, what, who could stop us now? I mean, what happens next? Other than the guy stands up. I think that's cool, though. Elisha, the work of Elisha continues on even after he's dead. Oh, I pray that that's the case for all of us, right? That long after we're gone, a godly legacy continues. Well, Haziel, let's finish the chapter out here real quick. Haziel, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. When Haziel, king of Aram, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again from the land of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoaz, his father. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. And again, wondering, no doubt, man, if I'd only kept going, what could have happened? We got some back, but 
didn't have complete victory. <laughs> keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Well, let, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word and just the richness of it. And Lord, as we look at the lives of, of these kings and of your people, that your word tells us that it's recorded here for us for our instruction. Lord, this isn't just a history lesson. This is, these are life lessons, and I pray that we all would embrace them. Lord, as we look at the life of Joash, somebody who seemed to start so well but failed to finish because his faith wasn't deeply rooted in you. It was based on others. Lord, we're challenged by that, all of us, that we all have a deep personal relationship with you. If you're here tonight and you've never made that commitment yourself, you've never, you've never committed your life to Jesus fully. You've rel you're relying on your parents or your grandparents or some other godly influence in your life. You simply right now in your heart, you go before God and you say, God, I want it for me. I believe, Jesus, that you died for me personally and I want right now to make you Lord of my life personally. Would you come into my heart and into my life right now and wash away my sin? Give me that gift of eternal life. Jesus, I want that personal, intimate relationship with you, and I want to follow you. Lord, we thank you for that work in us. We thank you for the promises that we have, that in you are all yes. And Lord, our desire is to have all that you desire for us. So Lord, we will continue to ask and seek and knock. We thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful and good God. Thank you for your word, Lord. We desire to go out now, and as we go to work tomorrow, we would be that light, shining in a dark place, understanding, Lord, that we work for you. It's all for your glory. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.